Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Collective Health. American employers are in the healthcare business. It's time they had the technology to drive it. CollectiveHealth.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the San Francisco Foundation, working with its many partners to advance greater racial and economic equity for everyone in the Bay Area. On today's California Report magazine, the California dream started with the gold rush. We'll meet a modern-day miner still hanging on to that dream. It's about freedom, man. I get to do what I want. I'm, I'm out in God's country every single day. I mean, this is, this is where I have lunch. This is my office. Plus, we'll take a trip to a place that claims to be home to the biggest gold nugget ever found. And we'll rewind to a time when California wasn't so welcoming to immigrants and hear how that sparked a grassroots movement. I get emotional thinking about how we all looked at each other. No one recognized that there was people power in the immigrant community and their allies. We didn't know we were that powerful. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. This week, California put itself on the map again as a center of resistance to the Trump administration's immigration policies. Protesters came out in force when the president visited Los Angeles and San Diego, where he inspected prototypes of his proposed border wall. Here's Imperial County Congressman Juan Vargas. Trump is not welcome here. He would be welcome if he stopped his racism. If he stopped pitting people once... But this kind of aggressive stance from California, its role as a sanctuary state, its laws to protect undocumented immigrants, all that's relatively new. In fact, California has a long history of trying to restrict immigration, even more aggressively than the federal government, dating back to before the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. California was even waging its own fight against immigrants as recently as the 1990s. They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border. Voters backed Proposition 187, which would have denied undocumented immigrants most public services. The courts struck it down, but the fight over that proposition transformed the state's politics and some people's identities as Californians. We're launching a new series about the California dream and what that dream means to people. It's part of a collaboration with public media organizations across the state. Today, KQED's Farida Javala Romero has the story of how a protest against Proposition 187 changed lives in a community near San Jose. 
Back in the early 90s, Californians were going through a brutal economic recession, lost hundreds of thousands of jobs, and the state's Latino population had doubled in just two decades. Racial tensions bubbled up in the town of Morgan Hill, south of San Jose. That was the very first time in my life that I was called a wetback. And these are kids that I went to school with since kindergarten. That's Amparo Sid. She was in fifth grade when Prop 187 was being debated. Former farm worker Jose Montemayor had naturalized as a U.S. citizen. But he says his American wife and kids were treated like second class. Montemayor says at the neighborhood park, Latino and white families kept their distance. And at their church, Father John Pedigo says he and another priest got hate mail for speaking up against Prop 187. Saying they didn't like what they heard, you know, at the pulpit because we were talking about uh, immigration or we are talking about immigrants or we are talking about rights. You know, um, people were calling us communists or socialists or you guys are terrible people. For Californians who work hard, pay taxes and obey the laws, I'm suing to force the federal government to control the border. Supporters of the measure, like then-Republican Governor Pete Wilson, argued illegal immigrants were draining the state of millions of dollars. Enough is enough. Governor Pete Wilson. Latino U.S. citizens worried they'd be racially profiled at schools, hospitals. Nancy Gonzalez was 14. You know, you look Latino, so we're going we're gonna to look further into your background, immigration status, and that's a violation of your rights. You know, that's a violation of privacy. All these Morgan Hill residents wondered, if they didn't stand up to Prop 187, what would come next? Father Pedigo was so frustrated, he came up with an idea to push back. We're gonna take a cross and we're gonna walk to the cathedral. The cathedral in San Jose, 20 miles away. Parishioners like Jose Montemayor helped organize. He got a friend with a radio show in Spanish to publicize. People made signs that read, No a la discriminación, no a la injusticia. No to discrimination, no to injustice. The marchers met at a rundown parking lot near Morgan Hills downtown. Today, there's a strip mall with a dental office and construction next door. It looks like they're building a apartments, some housing. In the morning of October 25th, 1994, Pedigo was wearing his white clerical collar, black shirt, and Birkenstocks. I don't think I had shoes. <laughs> I don't think I owned any shoes at the time. They began walking north. Pedigo and I drive on the route they took as they left town along a highway. We pass apricot orchards, packing plants. The place up here, right where these trailers are, I was getting, we're getting a little bit disheartened because it's like halfway to San Jose by now and we are <laughs> we're getting very tired and it was hot they got blisters but as they passed neighborhoods and other parishes people offered food and water others joined the group swelled to 200 it was beyond anything I hoped for at this point there was we were committed to it Nancy Gonzalez marched holding her little sister's hand she felt proud we're out here, we're marching. We may or may not make a difference, but people are definitely gonna see us. By sunset, they saw the tall buildings in San Jose's downtown. People are really getting excited. I'm getting kind of excited. I no longer am thinking about how hungry, tired, and bloody my feet are. They see another crowd as they approach the cathedral, filling a park, filling the streets. Because I remember, I think some of us started running. 
you know, there was a big group of people there. Uh, I don't know where they came from, but it felt like a big welcoming. Word of the protest had spread, and somewhere between 2,000 and 10,000 people were there. One of them was Teresa Castellanos, a fourth-generation American. She was a young mom and union organizer. She brought all her three kids with her. To say we stand together and we support each other and we're a community here that contributes. Finally, Pedigo and the Morgan Hill marchers walked up the marble steps of the cathedral. Inside, it was packed. People held candles. I get emotional thinking about um, how we all looked at each other. No one recognized that there was people power in, in the immigrant community and their allies. We didn't know we were that powerful. In the decades that followed, that sense of power stayed with the marchers. It changed my life. Nancy Gonzalez, Jose Montemayor, and their families still live in Morgan Hill. They vote every single election for Democrats, who they see as more supportive of families of color. Even if I didn't have a voice back when I was 14, as soon as I turned 18, then I had a lot of responsibility. Amparo said became an attorney working on social justice issues in Fresno, a decision she links directly to her experience as a kid with Prop 187. She says today's kids are paying attention too. They are watching and are hearing um, what's happening and what's coming out of our federal decision makers. And those kids are going to grow up to be phenomenal agents of change. Father Pedigo now directs advocacy for one of the largest nonprofit agencies in Santa Clara County. And Teresa Castellanos has worked for 23 years to promote citizenship in immigrant communities. I think what we're fighting about in this country right now is the definition of what is an American. She says as other parts of the country deal with economic anxieties and racial tensions, California found a way. And I think the lesson that California has is that when you are inclusive, when you grow with your community, when you acknowledge a diversity, that is an asset. We are the richest state in the nation and a state that is more comfortable with a multicultural, diverse identity than earlier in its history. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero in Morgan Hill. Farida's story is part of a new series produced in collaboration with public media organizations across California, looking at the state of the California dream. Of course, some of the first people coming to California to chase a dream came here looking for gold. Back in 1848, a sawmill worker first found some precious nuggets near Sacramento. And then 300,000 prospectors poured into California, hell-bent on striking it rich. The gold rush helped transform the state into an economic powerhouse and established its reputation as a place where fortunes could be made overnight. Of course, these days, most people are chasing other dreams, other riches. But as KQED's Matthew Green tells us, there's a rare breed of Californian still out there looking for gold. Right after we first meet, 
Shannon Poe asks me if I'm allergic to poison oak and if I get really freaked out by ghosts. Because where we're going, there's a lot of both. Everything out here either stings you, sticks you, or bites you, Matthew. But we still love it. Well, let's see if we can find some gold. I'm tagging along with Shannon as he explores the bottom of a small canyon on public land near the North Fork of the Merced River. It's close to his property, a spread he says he bought about 10 years ago with, picture this, a jar full of gold. I found a guy that had, you know, 10 acres up here and I offered him a, basically a baby food jar of gold and he took it and we own the property now. Shannon's a stocky guy in his mid-50s with the weathered skin and gruff manner you might expect from someone who spends a lot of time alone in the woods. He fires up a dusty Kawasaki four-wheeler and soon we're roaring down rutted fire roads through oak and manzanita. Yosemite's El Capitan peeks out to the east. We roll past ancient pipes and mining machines. It's a scattered collection of hulking steel carcasses hauled here 150 years ago by donkey cart and left to rust. You can see along this wall is the remnants of the old Pony Express Trail right there. See it come across? We hop out and scamper down a makeshift trail. He stops at a bend in a creek where the current is slow enough for small fragments of gold to fall out. He reaches in the water and digs up a shovel full of rock and sand, and then filters out the sediment with his ribbed pan. Nothing in that. I gotta go down. I gotta get to the bottom of that crack before I'm gonna really find anything. In order to be a good gold miner, you really need to understand geology, hydrology, topography, and then be just dumb enough to come out and work your ass off to try to find it. And to find the good stuff, it really helps to know some gold rush history. People came from all over the world. You know, there were newspaper articles in France saying that you could walk around and pick up five pound nuggets just laying on the ground. But Shannon says the old time miners left a lot behind, especially right below where their cabin stood. That's what he's looking for. We know that this was started to be mined in this particular area in 1851. And if they came down and they built a cabin here, there's a good chance that the ground underneath here has never been touched by human hands before. Shannon grew up panning in the streams near his hometown in Oregon. But gold fever didn't fully kick in until he came to California for a corporate security gig about 15 years ago. I got really sick and tired of you know, company cars and human resources and all that kind of crap. I decided to take a year off and I had some mining claims and we pulled over six figures in a couple of months. He's since become something of a gold mining evangelist, supporting other small-scale prospectors in their quest. His truck is covered with a huge American flag decal, an image of the Constitution and the tagline, fighting for your right to mine. It's about freedom, man. I get to do what I want. I'm, I'm out in God's country every single day. I mean, this is, this is where I have lunch. This is my office. Last year was a really good one for dedicated small-scale miners like Shannon, thanks in part to California's extreme weather patterns, the historic drought followed by last winter's torrential rains. Mother Nature came along, scoured all the stuff that you would have had to do all this manual physical labor for, and just cleaned it all away for us. So we just walked in and went, oh, I'm just going to dig right here. Thank you very much. After lunch, we come to the gaping mouth of an old mine that Shannon estimates was dynamited out in the 1860s or 70s. The tunnel disappears quickly into darkness. 
a cool wind blows out. This actually has tunnels that go in for a couple of miles. There's some rooms inside this load mine that are the size of basketball courts. He says there are tons of hidden tunnels around here, and they don't appear on any maps. And there's still lots of gold in them, if you're dumb enough to go inside. See how rickety this stuff is? Look at that, man. Would you climb in that? Hell no. Yikes. Imagine how many miners died up here in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. And, I mean, just got crushed, and their buddies drug them out and buried them right next to the mine shaft. We're, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we're 50 feet from dead people right now. I look around, feeling a bit uneasy. I can make out the makeshift shelves that miners chiseled into the walls to hold their oil lanterns. If you sit here and there was absolutely no sound or anything like that, you would hear people using picks inside here. I've heard it dozens of times. Shannon claims he even once heard a banjo strumming, echoing from deep inside the mine. I don't know whether I believe in ghosts or not. All I can tell you is I know what I've heard, and it's really weird. Back at the creek, Shannon's wrestling a big rock. We roll it over, and he grabs some debris and pans it. He grins and hands me a speck of gold, not much bigger than an apple seed. Not bad, $20 pan. Way cool. I'll admit, it's a pretty far cry from the big nuggets I was picturing. But there's still a little thrill in finding even a tiny piece of the glimmering mineral lying there on the creek bed. That's $20 right there. Oh yeah, easily. Thin stuff, but nice. Yeah, you gotta take that home with you. Tell everybody you found gold. You moved the rock. I thank him for it. A good start to my kids' college fund. For the California Report, this is Matthew Green in Mariposa County. The gold rush shaped a lot of California towns, including the place that claims to be home to the largest gold nugget ever found. And that takes us to the next town in our series about California places with unusual or surprising names. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Starting route to a paradise. A lot of us here in the Golden State are pretty sold on the good qualities of the places where we live, but not too many of us can make this claim. I live in paradise. That's Mark Thorpe. And he's not exaggerating. He's one of the 26,000 people who live in Paradise, California. The town is in Butte County, about 10 miles east of Chico. It was a gambling-oriented mining community. Basically, it came about as a result of the Eclampus Vitus, which is the, the local clamper group, miners up here, um, that had actually called it a pair of dice. And then they refined it to paradise, of course, um, had more appeal for the community. The largest gold nugget uh, found was a 54-pound nugget found just down in the west branch of the Feather River, just above Paradise. Gold Nugget Days is a number of different events that occur throughout the community in celebration of the finding and transport of the 54-pound nugget. It involves donkeys and an actual uh, group of donkeys in competition to haul a given amount of weight up the west branch of the Feather River Canyon wall. 
and then they have the continued celebrations with parades and other activities down in Paradise proper. It's still a small town that it was 35 years ago, just with some names that have changed for different retail locations. It's still a small town. And if you want a taste of paradise, the 60th annual Gold Nugget Days Parade is coming up on April 28th. Know about a California town with an unusual name for us to visit? Email us at calreport at kqed.org. This coming week marks the official start of spring, at least according to the calendar. Trouble is, if you're a migrating bird, you don't have a calendar. And California's changing climate is jumbling up the timetable for bird migration and breeding. That can spell real trouble for some species. KQED science editor Craig Miller introduces us to a scientist who's measuring just how much trouble by listening. Pacific Slope Flycatcher, Brown Creeper. I'm sitting here with Brett Furness. Hermit Warbler. He's an ecologist for the state's Department of Fish and Wildlife. So that's a black-headed grosbeak. But we're not out in the woods with binoculars. We're on his living room sofa. He's hunched over his laptop with his mop of graying hair and wire-rimmed glasses, and we're hearing recordings from a 15-year project by the Wildlife Investigations Lab, where Furness works. Very beautiful call. It's like um, a robin, but I think with a little bit more flourish. This recording is from a forest near Eureka in May of 2016. They're all kind of partitioning the time, singing not all on top of each other, but in different frequency ranges at different times. And it reminds me of, of an orchestra, but there's no, there's no conductor. And the more birds, the fuller the orchestra, which reaches a kind of crescendo at the peak of the mating season. Over the years, Furnace's team has made hundreds of these recordings in the forests of Northern California, including more than 300 sites along the Pacific Crest Trail. And from those, they've been able to pinpoint the peak mating season and track how that's changing. And it is changing. Their song is beautiful to listen to, but they're singing for a reason. What Furnace's team is most worried about is mismatch. To migratory birds, timing is everything. They're singing to attract mates and to establish territories. And this is important for them to be able to breed and then maintain the population levels. Imagine you're on a road trip, tired and counting on a late meal at the motel diner up ahead. And when you get there, well, the motel is open, but the diner is closed. That's what migrating birds encounter if they arrive days ahead of schedule and the bugs they rely on for food aren't there yet. If the timing is too far off, it could threaten the populations of some species. And indeed, other studies have shown that across the northern hemisphere on average, the breeding is advancing on average four days per decade, which is quite alarming. Not far from Furnace's backyard up in the Berkeley Hills, he shows me the setup. The equipment is about as basic as it comes. I'll show you right here. He takes out one of those plastic tubs for keeping leftovers in the fridge. So I'll get out a recording device here. Inside is a tiny digital recorder about the size of a matchbox strapped to a piece of foam. I thought maybe they'd hang them from trees or something, but now he leaves them right on the ground at the various listening sites. 
funny things happen to these. Bears have chewed them up and spit out all the batteries a few times. <laughs> so there are definitely some, uh, they, they take a, a beating. <laughs> yeah, and so do the researchers sometimes. One of my plots, I actually got chased by a wild horse. And another one, I stepped on a hornet's nest. And I think another one, I almost stepped on a rattlesnake. So, so these days, he leaves most of the field work to assistants. But the recordings that survive yield valuable data. Let's go back to that recording from May 2016, before the crowd showed up. But you know, so there's a few other birds in the background, but it's really just this one bird. And so it has arrived earlier in the season. This is the May 20th. Now let's fast forward about three weeks. Later in the season, and there's a whole bunch of birds singing almost on top of each other. From this, Furnace's team has been able to pinpoint the timing of peak breeding to the day. Now, instead of catching birds in nets one at a time and banding them or dispatching platoons of birders into the woods to count beaks, experts can listen to these recordings and analyze the audio to find when different species' songs are at their peak. That's the reason why we're collecting this information, is to help us make the best conservation decisions. Birds perform vital functions in the ecosystem, controlling insect populations, spreading seeds around, but they also make an irreplaceable soundtrack for our lives, if we pay attention to it. The sounds, the soundscapes that you hear is just something really special that we, I think we have here in our California forests. Even if you don't know what all the birds are, you, you hear them and, and it affects you. And so you, you don't have to be a scientist to appreciate why nature and the sounds of nature are really important for our quality of life. Furnace just hopes that same soundscape will be here for future generations. For the California Report, I'm Craig Miller. from a new album, a collaboration between two Central Valley artists, saxophonist and composer Benjamin Boone and the late Philip Levine. He's the former U.S. Poet Laureate, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and the godfather of Fresno's thriving poetry scene. Both men were teaching at Fresno State when they decided to set some of Levine's poems to music. His poetry speaks to the struggles of working people, people trying to just make ends meet. Even though Phil Levine died three years ago, Benjamin Boone kept working on the album, which comes out this week. Here's one song that celebrates the Central Valley. Our valley. We don't see the ocean, not ever. But in July and August, when the worst heat seems to rise from the hard clay of this valley, you could be walking through a fig orchard when suddenly the wind cools and for a moment you get a whiff of salt and in that moment you can almost believe something is waiting beyond the Pacheco Pass. Something massive, irrational and so powerful even the mountains that rise east of here have no word for it. 
Philip Levine and Benjamin Boone's recording, The Poetry of Jazz, is out this week on Origin Records. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. You can let us know what you think about our show on the California Report's Facebook page or email us, calreport at kqed.org. Our director is Susie Racho. Seal Muller is our technical producer, and we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Victoria Maulione is our senior editor. Our online producer is David Marks. Nadine Sabai is our intern. The California Report's editorial team includes includes Adrian Hill, Nina Thorson, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state? your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. The James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2019 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvine.org. And Paint Care, Through Paint Care, paint manufacturers make it easier for households and businesses to recycle leftover house paint with over 800 convenient drop-off locations around California. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com slash parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.